Well, our artificial intelligence is a reflection of human intelligence. Yeah. Diversity is really the major driver within our country and within our mm. higher education system. So there needs to be a lot more attention to diversifying the senior leadership of higher education. And we're in 2019 going into 2020 into a new century, the new set of generation. This is no longer acceptable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we have to put institutions on red alert. Welcome to The Edge, supported by Salesforce.org. This series is all about new ways of doing things in higher education leadership in an era of dizzying advanced computing. We'd love to hear from you. Tweet us using the hashtag EdTechPodcast. This week's episode looks at equity, equality and diversity in higher ed leadership. Around the world, diversity in higher education leadership is sorely lacking. For example, in the UK, the higher education's leading establishments in the Russell Group have an ethno-cultural representation that is 97% white amongst the senior leadership, making it less diverse than boards of FTSE 100 companies. And looking at gender, analysis of the Times Higher Education World University rankings in 2019 show that only 34 of the top 200 institutions are currently led by women. At a time when universities are under immense pressure, what is the role of leadership in developing higher education? If, as McKinsey famously states, organisations with more diverse workforces perform better, then what are higher education institutions up to and why are diversity initiatives largely focused on the student population and not also focused at better scrutinising governance and leadership? In this episode, we delve into inclusive models of leadership, the role of digital skill sets in supporting or aggravating existing inequities in leadership, and what current leaders think will change the dial in diversity in higher education at the top to the benefit of the sector. To reflect on where we are currently, here's Dr. Charles Prince, Director for the Centre for Student Success at the University of East London in the United Kingdom. How's things? Things are good. Um, in Dublin, waiting for my flight. Wow, you're multitasking. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And um, I mean, this episode is on equity, equality and diversity in higher ed leadership. My question here is, in a nutshell, how would you explain the current landscape? Well, I think it can be very summed up in two things. One is there was a recent uh, article by um, a president of an association, and I believe she is the University of Brighton's vice chancellor, uh, and she's also openly gay. And one of the statements she made was, uh, in her role as president of the association, she recognizes that the the industry, the higher education industry, not only lacks in LGBTQ, but also lacks in people of color, uh, disabilities, physical disabilities. Uh, It also lacks uh, with, you know, international experience. And so there is a level of, of equality, diversity, and inclusion that is lacking at the top. And that goes to my second point, is that it, to, to improve the quality, diversity, and inclusion at universities, it has to happen at the top. And what we're starting to see right now is that equality, diversity, and inclusion is happening at the bottom of institutions. So where people are getting paid by the hour, where people are getting paid uh, at very low levels in the institutions, we have individuals who, uh, once you start getting into management grade and higher, you start to see that it becomes much wider, 
uh, it may become more male, but we're also seeing white females uh, in that respect as well. And so there is a lot of work that needs to be done as you start to look at institutions on the, on the staff side or the administration side to improve. I think there are a number of conversations on the student side that are taking place because ultimately those students, uh, well, we, we, those students aren't accessing higher education, which is why we as a, as a sector are having conversations about the attainment gap. Mm-hmm. So why is it that so many students are not accessing higher education? Why is it that so many students are not reta- are being retained? And not graduating, not getting employed. Uh, and so what you start to see is uh, a large conversation about how do we improve the experiences of people who are non-white getting into institutions of higher education. And one of the things that baffles the higher education sector, or me, baffles me about the higher education mm-hmm. sector, okay, what tends to make the headlines recently was the stormy effect. And Cambridge made the headlines because they got 91 black students to come into the institution and they're saying that it's because of this rapper uh, that all of a sudden they're getting a larger interest of black students going into cambridge and to me that not only offends me but it makes me laugh because first of all the person the black the blackness that you use in order to attract other blackness is a stereotypical black of mm-hmm. blacks being rappers, not intellectually stimulating, not solving, can- not you know, not giving a cure for cancer, not being physicists or economists, not doing something worthwhile, and not even black in your own organization. But because someone who is a rapper uh, can give you the work to get 91 out of an institution that recruits over 20,000 some students. And, and that makes headlines. And so why would I expect the higher education sector in the UK to ever take the conversation of equality, diversity, and inclusion seriously, when what gets promoted, when what gets talked about as success is something like Cambridge. Now, don't get me wrong. I totally get it. You know, they're trying to increase their numbers. I totally understand that. Uh, But it's not good enough. And we're in 2019 going into 2020 into a new century, the new set of generation. This is no longer acceptable. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we have to put institutions on red alert due to the lack of equality, diversity, and inclusion, not just on the student side, but also on the, on the academic and administration side. You know, just for taking another example, and then I'll stop here. I was, in a re- I was in a meeting recently, about a couple of weeks back, and there are only two black professors of sports in the industry and teaching of sports, two black professors who have professorships uh, in the entire country of the UK. Now, how does how is that possible? But that can't necessarily be right. And the number of black professors we have in the entire UK is almost uh, non-existent. Really, uh, is less. I think is less than fifteen people in total. Um, and so, again, why would we expect the higher education sector to take any of this seriously when they can't even get? Uh, they can't even train and hire people of color and hire people uh, from various backgrounds and promote them and support them and promote them into levels of professorships and deans, associate deans, uh, you know, per vice chancellor and vice chancellors. Um, and so it's still stark in uh, uh, statistics and data that we're seeing that just makes us baffled by the way the higher education sector is responding to EDI. So things don't seem to be changing fast. 
This year, whilst French President Emmanuel Macron responded to the Yellow Vest movement with a plan to abolish the infamously hierarchical Grand Ecole system of higher education to make it less elitist, back in the UK, Kahind Andrews, an academic professor of black studies at Birmingham City University, was quoted at higher ed event Wonky as stating, Universities are not racist, they are racism. And a Times Higher Ed article entitled Racism Against Students Taken More Seriously Than Staff Abuse highlighted the potential lack of reporting and redress among staff, academics and governance. But is it all bad? So there will be uh, a tsunami. I think there will be a paradigm shift here where the future of higher ed will look much different than it looks today. Clearly, diversity covers a huge spectrum, often intersecting and covering socioeconomic status, gender, race, sexual identity and more. Shifting our perspective to women in senior leadership positions, there are some positive changes. Women Count produces leaders in higher education reports on the representation of women in key leadership roles across higher education institutions in the UK. Their latest report showed an increase in female chairs of governing bodies from 19% in 2016 to 27% in 2018 and female vice chancellors from 22% in 2016 to 29% in 2018. Some other positives. Scotland has achieved parity between men and women as chairs of governing bodies, whilst Wales has achieved parity between men and women in vice chancellor roles. But globally, shifts towards parity are more patchy. To find out more, I spoke to Karen A. Longman, Professor of the Department of Higher Education and Programme Director, PhD in Higher Education at the Azusa Pacific University. Karen is the author of Perspectives on Women's Higher Education Leadership from Around the World. Uh, As you mentioned, I direct the PhD programme at Azusa Pacific University, which is just on the north side of Los Angeles up against the San Gabriel Mountains out there. Uh, I've done that for about 14 years. I also am a professor in the higher ed doctoral program. We offer both an EDD in higher ed leadership and a PhD in higher education and have about 180 students in those programs, all of whom work in higher education, mostly around North America, but some from around the world. Um, I'm, I'm also just finishing a project that may be of interest Uh, which is editing, co-editing with a couple of friends, uh, seven books on women in leadership around the world. Wow. Different different dimensions. One looks at how the media has informed women's experiences uh, in leadership. One talks about communication patterns and styles that may be influential in women's leadership experiences. There's two around different regions of the world and women in leadership around the world. And I was the lead editor on a book on women in leadership in higher education specifically. And, and that's what's so excited about uh, connecting with you because, you know, this is specifically the area we're looking at in this episode. So um, I guess just to start, uh, can you give a sense of what um, the current landscape looks like in higher education leadership? I would say worldwide, anyone who reads our primary professional publication, The, the Chronicle of Higher Education, mm. Uh, would say that higher ed is in great flux and under great pressure uh, for a lot of reasons. In the North American context, it would be partly demographics, partly federal and state funding, partly student debt, um, partly changing demographics. So the majority of students coming in, I think 
people who are listening may not be aware of this, but the United States will be what we call a minority majority country somewhere in the 2040 range, 2042, 2045. So the majority of people living in the United States will be non-white. Yet many of our institutions have been predominantly white and led by people who are Caucasian. Uh, So for example, last fall about this time, a major national conference by the Association for the Study of Higher Education focused on what we call the Woke Academy, W-O-K-E, which is becoming shorthand for realizing that diversity is really the major driver within our country and within our Mm. higher education system. So there needs to be a lot more attention to diversifying the senior leadership of higher education. So I guess I would just add to that uh, the concept that uh, an author who who is aligned with the Chronicle, Jeff Salingo, wrote about the unbundling of higher education. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, there's a book called That uh, College Unbound, where higher education is looking at the traditional models and realizing for a lot of reasons that they may not fit what students need in the future. And we we need to become much more nimble and address the needs of students while protecting the best of what higher ed has always offered in terms of educating the future citizenry and employers of our country. So aside from the obvious, why does all this matter? In the UK, at the launch of the Advance HE portal to support diversity in higher education boards, Elizabeth Pacey, co-chair of the 30% Club Higher Education Initiative, said, In my experience, greater diversity avoids groupthink by bringing angles and perspectives from people with different backgrounds and experiences. But for these different angles to be brought in, new perspectives on the very ideas of leadership and what various individuals are motivated by need to be considered. In short, the advice is to work towards a broader, more inclusive idea of leadership, to reap the benefits and skill sets of those currently sitting outside of the majority of leadership teams. Yeah, I think, so a couple of things. One is, is in this thing, I think about the number of people of color who hold high senior leadership positions in universities. There are a number of skill sets that I think the UK institutions aren't taking into consideration. The first is, is that from the US perspective, there are a number of people in senior leadership who aren't of academia. Mm. And what UK universities need to recognize is that they are a business. And as a business, you need a variety of people serving in leadership. And that means looking for people who are not of the university, managing the university, um, or being in roles of leadership. So, for example, I expect that Board of Governors um, at various institutions, there's a large proportion of those who need to be external to universities, who shouldn't be Professor Emeritus, Vice Chancellor Emeritus. You know, they, they have to be individuals from the private sector, mm-hmm. from other sectors across the UK. The same with leadership. I think there needs to be a number of vice chancellors who don't have PhDs, who aren't academics, who have never stepped in university, uh, who are coming from the industry. And, and I say that because in one of the conversations, or one of the talks I gave a couple of weeks back, I said, if you think about vice chancellors in the UK, who would you consider to be the next Steve Jobs? Who would you consider to be the next Elon Musk? Now, obviously, you can have a conversation about EDI, and these are uh, white males. But ultimately, 
what these two individuals have done, and there are other people as well who you could say are the next, um, in next in your industry, but these are individuals who looked outside of their industry in order to impact their work in the organization. And I think we've got to start thinking like that as UK institutions. And that goes for innovation, education, ensuring that all of our students are digitally proficient, ensuring that we have a number of people of color rising up into the ranks, people from LGBTQ, people who have disabilities, being able to be promoted and respected in these ways and represented at these levels. Um, and so it's things like that that this the UK sector is missing substantially from their organization. And as long as they hold true to their historical context of who can run these organizations, who needs to be in leadership, what their background needs to be, it will always be a stifling sector in which we will constantly have these conversations and it'll be 2040. I think that higher education is one sector, but many sectors are working on this, uh, the corporate sector in particular. So as we look at the demographics, at least in the United States, since 2006, the majority of people earning degrees from associate degrees, bachelor's degrees, master's and doctorates have been women. Uh, and yet the leadership in higher education has been historically predominantly white and male. Uh, but th this is true in, in many, many uh, sectors. Uh, for example, there in Harvard Business Review, there was a cover story people might want to track down. Uh, one author who's doing really interesting work in this area is Ibera, I-B-A-R-R-A. And the cover story looked at why corporations are spending millions and millions of dollars to try to diversify the senior leadership, but nothing seems to happen. So one of the distinctions I'd want to make that I think is true for higher ed as well as the corporate sector and other sectors is the difference between leadership development and the skills of budgeting and strategic planning and decision making and the reality of what's now being called in the literature leader identity development. Mm -hmm. How do mm -hmm. people begin to see themselves as leaders? How do they be viewed as leaders by other people? And in many sectors, uh, corporate and higher ed, being two, uh, I think there needs to be work on understanding the benefits of diversity as well as understanding the process of both leadership development and leader identity development. So, so let me add to that the work that Ibera and her colleagues uh, are doing would describe, and this Harvard Business Review article cover story, September 2013, uses the phrase, it's a very fragile process to begin to see yourself as a leader. And because Historically, there's a whole theory that's around role congruity theory. We perceive leadership in certain ways, but um, perhaps in the future, something closer to transformational leadership, which is a very well-researched leadership theory, would suggest that the empowering and the collaboration uh, and de decentralizing uh, mm. leadership and authority to involve others is, is the way to go. So we have to be looking at the literature and looking at the research and the pipeline theory has always assumed because it has been male normed that you would put a lot of people into one end of the pipeline. They would enthusiastically swim up to the middle of the pipeline and then squirt out the top of the pipeline <laughs> as senior level leaders. But what motivates, and obviously I want to be very clear, all their gender, 
is a continuum. There are, mm. are all kinds of women and all kinds of men and all kinds of people that don't identify with those labels. Um, but the research that's coming out of Barbara Kellerman up at Harvard and Deborah Rohde out of Stanford Law School would suggest that the pipeline is a fallacy, and they call it actually a pipe dream that we've mm. been putting stock for 30 years that we just need to get more women into the entry point or the bottom of the pipeline, and they will eventually word out the top, but the um, the motivators for people to step into leadership seem to be somewhat different. So that's one of the things my research team of doctoral students out at Azusa Pacific University has been working on. This idea of perspective is important when we are designing student experiences or research environments. Past examples of poor user experience design informed by an average or normed user underline the point. And when we throw in algorithms, these disparities can grow at alarming rates. We need to expand uh, the understanding of diversity, uh, not just from the typical uh, realms that we have been, that we look at, mm-hmm. uh, but to, to really question uh, every interaction and every uh, situation under the lens of diversity. Uh, I listened to a, a podcast that was discussing the, uh, the fact that um, uh, car uh, safety mechanisms are still only being tested on mm. a male body. Uh, yeah. So the male body is the uh, the crash dummy. Uh, and so uh, they start with that as the default and, uh, and has been the case in many medical studies. Mm. And also, most surprisingly, it was a study on um, uh, traffic patterns. So how people cleared roads. Uh, based on traffic patterns, something you would never think would be uh, under the consideration of gender bias. Uh, but this, so this was in Sweden. And then uh, the study went into detail about uh, how uh, male and female traffic, traffic patterns were different. Um, and uh, that the way that snow was cleared uh, was to, um, to benefit the male traffic patterns. Uh, which I found, I found was very interesting. Uh, so it's really, and that's why I say we have to to look at every single every angle under this, uh, this lens. Um, and, and now we'll have our, our algorithms deciding those traffic patterns. And if they're fed on, on mm. data that is from a skewed source, uh, then uh, it will, will have uh, the, the resulting impact. Janet Raffner is the Director of Learning at Aarhus University and a researcher into hybrid intelligence. I was interested to ask her about the potential impact of digital skills as a defining aspect of leadership and whether this might help to maintain the current fault line among higher ed boards and where they are drawn from. So now we're, we're looking more and more towards these hybrid intelligent systems, which are both um, augmented, that both augment human intelligence and augment machine intelligence and work towards the synergy between those two. And that relies on a deep understanding of the strengths of both those humans and machines and how to make a complementary use of both of them. On the human side, uh, there's a big focus on uh, intuition. So uh, understanding the skills of flexibility and transfer, empathy and creativity, being able to annotate data, and it essentially comes down to common sense, Mm -hmm. uh, which I'll talk a little bit more about too. And then on the computer side, uh, our our machines are really good at the pattern recognition um, and uh, speed and efficiency, dealing with probabilistic information and consistency. 
But if we return back to what the humans are good at, uh, the common sense side, I think that uh, the the leaders and the future, uh, both both in a university setting and um, in uh, a profession, general professional settings, uh, will have to focus on being able uh, to capture knowledge or expertise into a form that can be readily used uh, in, and kept in current real-world situations. So this, beyond those skills that we have, the, the flexibility, empathy, creativity, this common sense, and this being ability to capture tacit knowledge and to transfer that uh, is going to be key in, in the leadership. So I think that uh, I, there, there are two key points. Um, and uh, the first is that um, perhaps if expressed using the right interfaces, our concrete job experiences is not so domain specific as we think and can be transferred to other domains. So I think that uh, the key aspect there is using the right interfaces. And maybe some of those exist, some of them don't yet. It's, a, it's an ever-growing field of research. but there's this feeling that um, these job experiences, this tacit knowledge is uh, unquantifiable and untransferable. And I think that uh, the in, in the future of our leadership, uh, we'll really need to uh, nail down the best uh, interfaces to use to unpack those experiences. And secondly, I think that uh, there's a huge potential to be gained for making uh, individuals in their uh, particular units aware of the intuitive choices that they're making. Mm -hmm. um, because I think that uh, a lot of individuals are simply not aware of what's going into their intuitive, intuitive choices. So I think that it will be, um, it's reliant on those key leaders uh, in, in a university or in a corporate setting uh, to be able to tease out from their team uh, how they're making um, intuitive decisions. And until we have some way of doing that on a much more scalable method, uh, that's going to rely on the, uh, the particular leader. A little bit more on that, I think that uh, there's something to be said about um, coming to terms with that also, because uh, I, I, from experience and from discussions I've had, uh, not so many people, whether they're in, in an engineering environment or uh, in an HR environment, uh, are, are happy to admit that they're making a gut decision. Mm -hmm. uh, and, where we have such a push to be making decisions based on um, a, a reason or fact that we can describe. And I think that it's very important for leaders to facilitate the right environment in which uh, they can uh, encourage and uh, make their, their teams comfortable with their intuition and mm -hmm. to become more... Um, as I stumble on my words now, more eloquent in describing uh, that intuitive experience. If this skill set becomes, you know, more and more important in terms of brokering the kind of digital versus human leadership qualities, how do we make sure that uh, women and those from other ethnic minority backgrounds are accessing the skill set and aren't kind of the, the, the gap that's already existing isn't further aggravated by this becoming a defining skill set? 
if, if I understand correctly, uh, you're asking um, how to ensure that this skill set needed mm -hmm. for hybrid intelligence does not further exacerbate the divide there is in uh, diversity in, for example, higher education. That's right, yeah. That's a really good question. Um, and uh, I, I don't know if I, I have a, a, an answer for you. It has a tech aspect, but I, when, when you think of, of intuition and empathy and creativity, I, I don't think that is dominated by by men those mm -hmm. those traits i think very inherently i mean we're looking at at human cognition we're looking at uh, these lower and uh, executive and then higher cognitive functions and soft or transferable skills and and those are by no means dominated by men mm -hmm. and i think that if you start with the premise that they are dominated by men then of course it leads to uh, to an idea that this field can be um, uh, can continue uh, to reinforce uh, the uh, the gender divide in in uh, higher ed, but I think that in fact it's it's really quite different that uh, these skills are so uniquely in, inherent in all humans mm. uh, that. Uh, there, there is no uh, no gender divide in who has these skills. I think that perhaps there's a gender divide in who's researching them at this moment, um, but I see that as a little bit different than a gender divide as to who will have them in the future. I think that's a fantastic and very optimistic answer because, um, yeah, actually what, what you're saying is that, you know, hybrid intelligence is, is going to be a defining characteristic because it's brokering the kind of advanced sort of technology that's coming our way with what is innately human. And actually, so that is something that all of us kind of uh, live and breathe and, and it will be, you know, being able to um, broach both of those skills um, which is perhaps a little bit more accommodating than currently what is deemed like, you know, a silo of the tech sector or the digital sector. And it, is, it plays Absolutely. more on our human strengths. Yeah. Because uh, in the, the hu uniquely hu human skills, it's not your, your ability to program or how, no. how much you can understand in a, um, a, about neural networks. I think that uh, one comment on how to, um, to prevent uh, it's uh, further exacerbating mm -hmm. a gender divide with regards to research currently is to uh, increase understanding and pre of the prevalence of AI. So sort of under the, the lens of AI for good, I think that we do risk um, entering a world that's perhaps not a... a a gender divide, but an economic divide. Mm, yeah. And I think that that's, with regards to AI, I think that's a, a much more dire issue to be, uh, to be addressed because artificial intelligence and hybrid intelligence is affecting everything from, from farming to medicine, uh, to travel. Uh, and these, these are not, um, 
limited to the to developed worlds mm. um and uh we risk leaving out the voices from uh, developing countries if if uh, we don't clearly communicate uh, all of the places in which artificial intelligence and hybrid intelligence will have an impact and so i think uh, that that divide is more um concerning to me at, yeah. uh, with regards to hybrid intelligence so I, risk having technology uh, that is only controlled by elite that's a, a short way of saying it yeah, um, yeah. if we if we don't uh, have transparency in both the research and the mechanisms and also uh, that transparency in the research and the mechanisms leads to a more equal playing field for innovation is there a generational divide in higher ed leadership so could we do more to have more perspectives covered off through kind of multi generations among the leadership team i believe so yes um i was having a conversation with a couple of colleagues recently and they said one of the criteria to be a vice chancellor uh was to be a white male above the age of 60 um and i think it, it's a honest it's an honest statistic. I think majority of vice chancellors are male and white, um, and they're disconnected. I think there was a, I know, I know for a fact, actually, there was a recent report that came out that said most vice chancellors were educated from private schools, not just MPs, and not the MPs uh, in the government, but also vice chancellors. And there was a conversation, I was on Wonk HE, okay. and they were saying, a number of vice chancellors were, were coming from private school education. And the question was, how closely should the vice chancellors be connected to the students that they educate? Mm -hmm. And not a number, and there were not a lot of vice chancellors who come from WP, but yet a number of institutions do a lot of work in WP. So what does that say about the students that we educate? It, what it says is, is that we, even though our, we believe in our education is good for them, they're not good enough to run the institution. They're not good enough to work for our institutions. They're good enough to go and work for everybody else, but not for their own institution. And I think that sends a signal out to a lot of people who choose to work where they want to work, choose to be educated where they want to be educated. Because I believe a number of institutions, if they change their leadership, when I worked at a high historically black college university in DC, majority of the students are black, Majority of leadership is black. Um, and, and that says something to students. And one of the things that I've recognized being at my level uh, and talking to other colleagues is that many times they don't share the same experience as the students that they educate. And to be honest with you, that has a huge impact on student retention, on student experience, on student satisfaction. Because many times students will think that you only see them as a number and not who they actually are. Now, that's an interesting thought. If I were to list the top 10 or 15 pressures uh, facing higher education, clearly technology and the expense of keeping up with technology and uh, the knowledge base for administrative leaders and faculty leaders to mm -hmm. understand technology enough to meet the needs of today's students, those are all areas of big concern. Uh, and obviously, it is impressive when senior level leaders can use technology well. I think we're in the middle of generational changes. And right now, uh, 
I guess I would say two things. One is that uh, the younger generation that's coming up expects certain things of leaders and will expect the leaders of the future to be savvy about using technology. But right now, I would say there are other dimensions of leadership that are more important and, and surrounding a leader with people who are very, very competent and can provide advice, but also represent areas of a university in a way that is compelling to students and families is more important than a singular leader having that skill. Because I think a lot of the leadership field, two things, one would be saying, we're a less and less um, focusing on an individual leader who needs to be mm. all and do everything uh, as uh, in contrast to hiring smart and building a team that is exemplary in their areas of specialty. Um, so that would be one thing. But another is my research team has been using the word capacious, which is not a word that was high on anybody's vocabulary <laughs> list, but they have more capacity to lead and to lead with more nimbleness and to broaden the definition of leadership. So leaders are getting things done in people, through people, uh, celebrating people instead of all the attention needing to go to the top. So I think a capacious a modeling of leadership is big enough to embrace having people who are better than the leader in the area of technology at the mm -hmm. same time incrementally we're moving toward an era where leaders have to have those kinds of capacities and where young women in college are uh, refusing to be stuffed into the box that women can't be or do technology well. So I, I think that in the next 10 or 20 years, we're going to see a major sea change on that front. I love that. And so capacious is the word of the day. <laughs> I, uh, I think if you understand the word, it communicates well that Having a hierarchical, singular, what we use, yeah. agentic, making things happen, is not the leadership of the future. So less egos and more collegiate, yep, potentially. <laughs> yeah. And, and actually, I would just say that one reason we got into that, the former president of Duke, uh, her name is Nan Cohane, K-E-O-H-A-N-E, has written a book on leadership and did research uh, both at Duke and at Princeton on looking at why female students at those major U.S. universities, why female students were not seeking high status, high power, high prestige leadership positions. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were uh, interested and were visible and present in leading cause-oriented organizations. So getting at purpose and why would you lead, why would you invest your life in something for female students is often around a cause. So it was really Cohen who who advised we need a more capacious definition of leadership that writes women in and does not uh, continue to perpetuate a male norm, hierarchical, competitive, um, decisive uh, uh, definition of leadership that, that women tend not to want to be a part of. It's really an interesting body of, of research. So given the status quo, what do our amazing guests think might help change the dial and bring a greater breadth of ideas into the university sector? Transparency and accountability is important. And transparency is especially important in the era of advanced computing and leadership. That is quite that is quite interesting. I mean, I know there's um, uh, it's quite a few years now, but there's um, an investment company where artificial intelligence was one of their board members. So it's maybe you know it's not unthinkable to think that a university uh, 
may have an AI on the board. And uh, if you think about student demographics and how that changes, uh, they could predict and help sort of model how the university develops in real time. But uh, perhaps that's a little bit far-fetched. <laughs> Well, I think that we'll, we'll conti continue to see um, artificial intelligence uh, growing in, in many different fields. Now it's doing things that uh, we considered to be uniquely human before, uh, such as making uh, beautiful compositions of music and artwork. Um, but, but with the example on, on the board of advisors, it, it's just important to have checks and balances like mm. we'd have for, for humans. Uh, humans, of course, we're not perfect. How can we expect our, our products to be perfect um, and to have scrutiny over uh, the, the decisions that the artificial intelligence makes like we have scrutiny under the decisions that humans make? Next up, don't forget that what gets measured gets done. Well, it seems as though that if you want things to happen quickly, uh, it needs to be regulated. Now, I'm not a big regulator. I don't necessarily believe that regulation is the answer. And obviously, coming from the U.S., we're not heavily regulated <laughs> in that manner. Yeah. But in the U.K., we tend to be highly regulated. And so I believe that the, the government or OFS will need to regulate this um, and bring out some policies and procedures and practices that need to be adopted by institutions and force the hand of institutions to really think about how they're engaging EDI, how they're engaging in graduate employability. I don't think they're doing enough to ensure that institutions are responding to this. Um, and I find it very interesting that the government and Office of Students have not taken this on as a requirement, as a way to mitigate. I find it that they are not um, using their powers that they have to regulate, and I also find it interesting that league tables, guardian, times higher, aren't using these metrics in different ways for their rankings. Now, don't get me wrong. I think um, I'm not necessarily a big fan of uh, league tables or guardian tables or complete higher, you know, complete guide or whatever. I think they're 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 pretty they're pretty poor um, in what they evaluate because they could be taking in consideration other metrics uh, to help them determine the best universities to go to. Uh, and so I think we've, we have an opportunity to really make a difference, but it's the external factors, it's the external pressure and that needs to happen to universities in order for them to change. To sum up, there are pockets of change and excellent higher education leaders from diverse backgrounds across a range of the board, including vice-chancellors, CIOs and governors. Diversity isn't solely a higher education problem, but higher education is being slow to enact change at the leadership level. Achieving diversity is slower in academic posts, and often this is where traditional recruitment is sourced from. Of the top 50 universities in the UK, less than a handful of vice-chancellors from a BAME background are recognisable, including Max Liu of the University of Surrey, Baroness Valerie Amos of SOAS, and Dame Manoush Shafiq of the London School of Economics and Political Science. And of these, many came from outside of the higher education sector to join the leadership team. 
There's a pipeline issue then, but also a constraint being placed on potential talent by the restricted concept of leadership currently put forward and replicated, which often misses more complex motivators among potential leaders. For example, according to an ACE report on college presidents, 32% of women presidents altered their career progression to care for a dependent, compared to 16% of men. Perhaps if we allowed for a more capacious leadership style, a broader range of people would come forward, strengthening existing ideas on the future of higher education. Not only that, but perhaps the era of advanced computing and AI might allow for us to give hybrid intelligence, that of humans and computing power, greater status and to define this less along lines of the typical IT persona of the past, but more on what speaks to us all as humans. But we need to ensure this era doesn't enhance the economic divide that already exists and without rigorous measurements, not much change is likely. On the Women Count website, it states, progress happens when enough people in enough parts of an organisation agree on what is and what is not okay. It happens when people start to have rigorous, provocative and ambitious conversations about the best ways of working together. We hope very much we've helped reignite some of these ideas to get you thinking. Some final thoughts from our guests on further ways to keep the conversation going. Okay, well... Uh, For maybe 10 years, I've been leading a a book discussion group at my university, which is one of the few places that brings together senior level administrative leaders as well as faculty leaders. Uh, There is confidence to be gained in the leadership uh, abilities of bringing women onto the decision-making team as well as diversity and, in our context, people of color. Um, So our book discussion group is called Leaders Are Readers. It doesn't say that every reader is a leader but it says every leader should be a reader. Uh, And we've probably read 50 books over the last several years and talked about them over a lunch hour. Um, Well, a few books that I've really enjoyed that might be of interest to people who are listening, and these are by authors that I think are doing significant work. Uh, One is by uh, Hewlett, who's been doing a lot of work. uh, Sylvia Ann Hewlett, H-E-W-L-E-T-T, has been doing a lot of work on sponsorship and how up-and-coming Potential leaders or emerging leaders uh, can identify someone who is more than a mentor but is a sponsor. And I won't go into that literature, but her most recent book, 2019, is on why people in senior level leadership should become sponsors for the next generation of leaders. But uh, her book that I like and we have used quite a bit is called Executive Presence. How do you carry yourself in terms of gravitas and communication and appearance? And she calls that the missing link between merit and success. Um, That's a Harper business book, Executive Presence. Another book by Ibera, who, again, I think is doing some of the most important and creative work in this area, is called Act Like a Leader, Think Like a Leader. So her last name is spelled I-B-A-R-R-A. What she says is that uh, the whole movement toward, toward authentic leadership and looking into yourself and being true to yourself is not the way to develop this leader identity. Uh, and that you really need to start with stretch assignments and networking broader and thinking higher and aligning your work with the mission and purpose of the co- corporation or the organization you work with. So she says you need to start, even if it's uncomfortable, acting like a leader and your interior life will follow. And that's mm-hmm. one of the ways to begin to develop a leader identity uh, and to begin to be seen by others as having leadership capacity and potential. 
another book that I really like that came out, which was more popular, but it creates great discussions is called The Confidence Code. This is about five years old now by Caddy Kay from the BBC and Claire okay. Shipman from ABC. And the subtitle of that is called The Science and Art of Self-Assurance, What Women Should Know. And the shorthand, one-sentence version of their uh, the case that they make, it's got an endorsement by Sheryl Sandberg from Facebook uh, and the author of Lean In, is that men tend to communicate for any number of reasons in a way that, that exudes confidence, whether or not they have competence, they're communicating that they can get things done. Whereas women tend to have a lot of competence, but do not communicate with much confidence, so they're not viewed as leaders. So there's a whole very interesting chapter in this book called The Confidence Code about what women can do to work on how they represent themselves as having confidence or even developing confidence. For example, just practice making decisions. And one of the things these authors recommend is change the language from me to we, because mm -hmm. women tend not to be motivated around me and putting your hand up and saying, I want to be a president, I want to be a provost, but they'll say, if, if I can contribute to a cause and a purpose that's important, I'm willing to step into leadership for the good of the organization. So they've got a whole chapter of really interesting ideas like that about how women can increase their confidence. I'll just one, mention one last one, which yeah. is not new, but it's, it's skinny and inexpensive and a great discussion starter. Uh, other people that are doing good work in this area, uh, Sally Helgeson, H-E-L-G-E-S-E-N, and Julie Johnson uh, wrote a book, I think 2010, uh, called The Female Vision, where they look at the uh, corporate culture and what tends to drive, uh, it's all corporate. They've done a, a mixed method study, so some qualitative, some quantitative. Uh, they look at what are the realities within a male-normed culture, and then the middle section is what women bring to leadership and why there's a disconnect. They got into this research because so many really talented women were opting out of corporate leadership. And in the book, they try to say, here's, here's the reality of corporate culture. Uh, this would relate to your technology interest. Here's what women tend to bring to corporations. For example, caring about the fabric of mm. the day-to-day -day life and the relational side, and how do we bridge the two so that both benefit from having women and men in leadership of the corporations that, uh, that we have in our world today. So those are a few that I've really liked. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some really great initiatives that are going on around student success. Um, when it comes to equality, diversity, and inclusion, that's not happening. If you take into consideration uh, the race equality charter, in the number of universities that are participating in the Race Equality Charter, there aren't any good practices about that at the moment. And so you can't really share with uh, with the larger sector where to go to find really good practice with EDI. Um, when it comes to student success, though, what I would tell people is, I think from my experience visiting various institutions, um, this recent grant proposal that the OFS came out with around mental health, they have a list of a number of institutions that they funded. Those are some really great best practices that are going on at the moment. Uh, UEL is one of those partners. Uh, we're working on how to build mental health and data analytics to better inform universities about how to identify students who might be at risk of a mental crisis or at risk of suicide. But ultimately, um, you know, when I think about my colleagues at 
Northumbria, I'm thinking about my college at Monday South Bank University in Greenwich. They are doing some really innovative things and pockets around student success and improving the student journey. Um, and, and some of that is about getting students employed and looking at how can we, as an institution, ensure that our students are getting work, work placement experience, internships, uh, and ensuring that they are engaging with industry very closely. And even thinking about Ravensbourne University, which is just not far from UEL. I mean, they really have some innovative things going on in arts, mm. uh, in design. Um, and and that, is, that is the new way, that is the new framework um, that students are looking for. And that has to be replicated across all universities uh, in, in the country. So, you know, I really think that there are really some really good practices. I'm just named a few uh, when it comes to employability, when it comes to other areas. But I do think those are some really good practices. And I think that I just want want to be be very clear on something is that I am by no means uh, downplaying the the problems in uh, gender inequality and um, uh, racial inequality in uh, higher ed uh, by by discussing um, the 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 characteristics for hybrid intelligence systems. Uh, but mm. but as you said, I really I truly believe that these qualities are uh, part of all humans. And <laughs> as we, uh, we move forward into an age where um, we are uh, exploring more hybrid intelligence systems, it, it will be clear uh, that it isn't um, baked into uh, to, to male jobs versus female jobs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, also, Karen, uh, thank you for personally dedicating your life to this. It's, you know, I'm going to benefit from it, as are many other women, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think it's very, very important that we broaden the understanding of leadership and write more people in around their giftedness rather than writing people out. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to see women and people of color and introverts and uh, all kinds of folks uh, invested to make the world a better place. And I think higher ed is the the core, the, the central location for helping make that happen is educating people who, who can view and contribute to a different world and a different future. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for listening in and huge thank you to all of my guests and salesforce.org for supporting. You can continue the conversation online at hashtag edtechpodcast at the handle podcast edtech and at salesforce.org on all the social medias or for all the show notes including resource and reading recommendations it's the edtechpodcast.com for more hybrid intelligence and higher ed themed content check out the salesforce.org forward slash higher ed website featuring blogs from some of our series guests have a great week bye bye